Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Business Podcast. This is the Sales and Marketing Insider Edition and I'm your host Paul Spain. Today we're speaking with Julian Smith who is the General Manager of Global Marketing at Rocket Global. Since taking charge of global marketing in 2020, uh, Julian has seen the sales at Rocket Global grow from 15 million to an impressive 150 million. Julian's experience in marketing includes working across some of New Zealand's greatest brands, including Icebreaker, Fisher & Paykel, Earthwise, Steinlager Pure, and Les Mills International, to name just a few. Julian and the team at Rocket Global were winners of the Supreme Award and the Large Business Award at the New Zealand International Business Awards uh, that have just taken place in October. The New Zealand Business Podcast Sales and Marketing Insider Edition is brought to you by Gorilla Technology and 40 Thieves Nut Butters. Gorilla are the go-to company for innovative, small-to-medium New Zealand organisations who want the best of managed technology and cybersecurity services. Well, let's jump in. Great to uh, great to chat. Great to have you in the mm-hmm. studio, Julian. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks. Great to be here, Paul. Yeah. Look, uh, you know, we we go back quite a way. Uh, it's really exciting to sort of you know mm. sit down and to uh, you know to hear a little bit about uh, you know what you've what you've achieved in in your career, mm. and I guess the opportunity to um, you know take some take some learnings from that because uh, you know you've you've had some some incredible success. You've you know you worked with uh, some some amazing brands and and really helped. Uh, move the needle for for those brands. So I'm I'm mm. kind of keen to hear. You know, where did it all begin? Where did you grow up? And uh, oh, you know, yeah, sure. and uh, and and what was sort of the you know the foundations to to your career in terms of study and so on? Yeah. So um, probably for me, you know, I grew up from quite a humble sort of background, and uh, one of the things for me was just really looking at what potential I could have in my career, what I could do in my life, and I think. Uh, some of the biggest drivers were actually, you know, what does success actually look like for someone coming from a humble kind of Auckland um, in a sub suburb, you know, and how far can I sort of go? So one of the drivers, I guess, was, um, you know, from that kind of humble background. I think the other thing was I was really into sport um, and it was such a motivator for me. I could see people performing at a kind of a high level, um, I was fascinated by the Olympics uh, as a kid, and I could just see sort of people driving through achievement uh, and success, I guess, through perseverance and determination. Uh, so as a kid, I just became sort of obsessed with training and, and getting into sport. Um, but equally, I was kind of a fascinating kind of person in that I was I was in the, um, you know, out in the field, but I was equally in the art room, you know, so I was... I was there with some of the creative kids as well and trying to find my identity, I guess, as a younger person with quite a varied sort of set of interests. So, um, you know, when I found marketing, I I found a way actually to combine those interests, um, whether it be sort of sport, music, art, um, design, and kind of bring that all to bear really. So, um, yeah, those were kind of the original kind of influences uh, for me to get into marketing and and to look at what I could take out into the world stage and maybe my unique way of kind of approaching um, my career and approaching my field uh, was based on all those kind of interests, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. So how did you decide uh, what and where to study? Yeah, um, 
I, I guess my dad had quite a big influence on my life as a younger person, and he he could see that I was the kid that was kind of going to school and and actually selling other kids, um, you know, cut up versions of products, you know, for a profit. <laughs> um, so he was like, "You should you should get into commerce." And as a younger kid, I was like, "You know, what what is a bachelor of commerce? What's what's this?" Um, but he was quite a motivating kind of person. So I studied at Auckland University. Uh, he was he suggested actually that if I did that at the time, it was quite a good thing for an international career. Um, and he was right, you know, I think it, it was actually where I really thrived. <clears throat> In my school years, I was, I was really busy sort of kicking goals and playing rugby and quite a social kid. And I didn't really get into my um, sort of education. I didn't really put the effort in, but... As soon as I got to university, it was really great. I was able to kind of thrive a whole lot more doing topics and studying things that were of real interest to me. So um, I did a whole lot better at university, actually, and sort of found my niche, I think, once I started doing a Bachelor of Commerce. Mm. Yeah. Now, looking back at that Bachelor of Commerce, was there, mm. was there anything in particular that was a, you know, was a good foundation for your career that, that you'd look at and think now, yeah, that, was, that actually really has helped? Yeah, it's funny because eh, everyone always talks about how this doesn't help you, you know, and why am I studying algebra at 16? You know, what's it going to do for me? But it was kind of the reverse, I think, when I got to university and that <coughs> everything was just so appropriate. Um, excuse me, I will take some water here. <coughs> uh, my international business papers, for example, were just so helpful for me. Um, learning about how to set up transnational companies and and looking at, you know, a bigger world and uh, those papers were just great grounding. I, I did minors in art history as well, so that enabled me to still kind of delve into my creative side at university as well. And then <coughs> uh, my marketing stats and my numbers side was really important as well. Um, so learning about kind of computer programs really early on. It's funny, you know, in those days, um, one of the questions in the in the management science papers was, what is the internet? It was literally a question <laughs> in my third year at university. And wow. I think out of 900 students, I think five people got it right. Um, so very much, you know, huge change, but um, great grounding then in terms of sort of looking at ways that the world was going to go through a technology change and I guess my career sort of spans a lot of that in terms of going from faxing right through to sort of where we are today. Um, so, yeah, so highly appropriate. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about entering entering the <coughs> workforce. What were your first, uh, your first roles? So actually, you know, I, I sort of reflect on I was probably my biggest break came through sort of a, a kid from pretty humble background. I was... I was literally pushing trolleys at the local Three Guys supermarket in my teenage years. Um, I was on like the most minimum wage. I think I was literally on a dollar eighty nine after tax per hour. It was something criminal, um, and I used to have to give a lot to my family just to kind of make it through. That's how sort of skin of a teeth we were. Um, so, <clears throat> sorry, I got a husky throat here, but um, you know, I, I actually got a break. Uh, meeting a guy who had a role that was going at one of the law firms in town, uh, Bell Gully, who looked at sort of a young guy and thought, okay, we'll, we'll bring him into our um, summer clerk team. And I went from 
sort of a dollar eighty nine after tax to twenty dollars an hour, <laughs> and it was like, oh my goodness, this is this is crazy. This is uh, this is totally going to be game changing for me. So so yeah, so I think that was kind of the original kind of impetus to to look at how I might um, get more into business, more seeking some of these roles. Um, and so I realized actually quite quickly working for Bell Gully that uh, I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I was, you know, really um, thankful for their approach, taking on someone like myself. Um, but it was kind of more observing their marketing team actually and thinking, yeah, actually maybe I should take up this marketing degree that my dad's been talking about because I actually quite enjoy what they're doing. Um, so my last year of summer clicking there, I was able to sort of join the marketing team and get some experience that way. So that was kind of my first kicker into into the whole field. Fantastic. Yeah. That was great that you were able to make that uh, that pivot within yeah. within the organisation. Was, uh, was that hard to engineer? Uh, the, you know, Bell Gully was actually a really great um, company at the time and they – they were looking to really help um, younger people and bring them on and give them a, give them experience. Uh, so it was actually just one conversation, and it was it was quite simple actually. So, um, but that you gave me you, really you initiated that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I went to my kind of manager at the time and said, "Hey, you know, actually, um, the law side is probably not for me. Uh, I really enjoy the commercial law side, and maybe that's good grounding into marketing, but." Um, you know, can I get some experience this year as a kicker into into that? And then probably my next kind of key role was uh, I met, I was young enough and open enough, I guess, to challenge and risk. And I met um, a guy who was selling wetsuits out the back of his car at Struck and Stride, uh, which was a local kind of swimming event down in St. Helier's. And he had a business called Performance Speed Suits. And he said to me, Oh look! Why don't you um, why don't you join my company? Because I've got, you know, I've got this great world-beating kind of product, uh, but I need someone like you with a marketing degree and who could come in and and help me sell it overseas. So this was in late nineties, um, and Performance Speedsuits at the time was kind of selling less than a hundred thousand dollars worth of product, um, mostly domestically. Uh, but we turned that business into Orca and grew that around the world over the next sort of seven, eight years, yeah. Orca, I mean, a real big New Zealand success story. Um, how, you know, how much did, did that, uh, how much did that grow? Uh, it grew a lot, yeah. I think we, you know, we had some fantastic success trying to look at creating the world's fastest wetsuit. It was always the vision, and I think, I think great businesses, great brands always have a really clear vision. So uh, we articulated and uh, quite naively, really, we had this kind of can-do attitude from New Zealand in that we didn't really know what we couldn't do. We were young young guys trying to take on the world. But we had this ambition of how do we create the world's fastest wetsuit. And I think that carried us through a lot of um, other almost like failings or things that we got wrong early on. Uh, but that... You know, that, that was a really great time for us to kind of throw my head in the ring and for a number of us to just to give it a crack, to try and grow it. Um, and we went from kind of nothing really to rebranding to Orca, to launching that at key events, uh, to taking Orca to the Olympics, um, to growing 100% year on year for three or four years um, and becoming probably the leading triathlon brand in the world. 
um, just after the Olympics in 2004. Um, so it was a really great um, success story. Um, Orca sold out to Orbea, a big Spanish cycling brand. So yeah, it was a good kind of um, Kiwi success story of growing and then and then with an exit, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, during these things, as you, you alluded to, there there can be a lot of challenges, right? Yeah. Uh, but those are great times of learning. What would you yeah. say were the big learnings from, from your period um, there? I think uh, probably one of the things is just you're going to fail when you start off and probably the the thing you've got to work out is making sure that you have measured risks so you don't go too far, you know. So we learned quite quickly um, through our production, through our marketing, that it wasn't always going to be on point. And in fact, we sometimes we didn't even really know what we're doing. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So, you know, we we did some work around the Olympics for the first year and I came out with this great ad. I thought it was going to be world beating, put it all around the world, you know, the world's fastest Olympic wetsuit. And um, I received a letter from the International Olympic Committee within sort of 30 days saying, hey, look, you're trading off our intellectual property. And it was a letter to sort of say, you, you know, you owe us 50,000 US dollars um, and you're in breach of our, our rights. And, um, and so, we sort of looked at each other and we thought, well, what do we do here? We certainly don't have 50,000 US dollars to stump <laughs> up and pay the, the International Olympic Committee. Uh, so we said, look, you know, probably the best thing we can do is just give them a call and maybe get someone in who's the representative of the local chapter and have a bit of a chat. So we did that. And I think they came in um, and our National Olympic Committee as well sort of looked in and said, oh, you know, who are these guys? Let's build some relationship. How can we maybe turn this around? And Part of that became us sponsoring the New Zealand Olympic Committee um, and the national team with with gear, um, talking to them about how we were in breach, but certainly we wouldn't make that mistake again. Um, and just educating us really around in New Zealand what was the Flag and Emblems Act and how we needed to uh, you know manage those properties. So I think when you make mistakes, you're better to just um, try and build relationship, be honest, work through it. Um, and certainly the, probably the learning is to try and make smaller mistakes <laughs> as you go through business. But, um, yeah, I mean, we were some young guys who had this passion, had this um, idea of taking on the world, and I think it, it was probably some of the best learning I could ever have. Almost a, almost a young person doing an MBA, really, in international business um, through that time. Yeah, it was great. Fantastic. Um, and then what... Uh what was the next next step, and why you know why did you uh, exit that? Because you moved mm. into a, an agency type role, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think Orca had kind of run its course. I really enjoyed working with um, a team there, and some of them I still keep up with. Um, uh, a great business guy, Jamie Hunt, um, who now works. Uh, he's got a new business actually that we worked on the brand together called Presio, and he came out of the two times you. Our business, uh, we work together at Orca, uh, so some you know some really great connections now with um, like-minded people. But it was just really time. Um, I lived up in Hong Kong for a couple of years uh, and based myself there and got some international experience, like creating a purchasing office up there for Orca. Uh, and then when it was sold, I think it was just the time to kind of move on. So I was looking for something a little bit different. I <coughs> had returned back to New Zealand. I was living here. 
and I was quite keen on maybe broadening my scope because I'd done sort of sports marketing and, and with Orca obviously taking that right around the world. But I was quite keen on looking at um, other industries and other challenges. So we'd worked with a really kind of boutique but creative agency uh, and probably New Zealand's best brand person um, in the 80s and 90s. His name was Brian Richards and he had a practice that was um, kind of game-changing for a lot of businesses in New Zealand. And his kind of thinking was world-class in New Zealand where he'd he'd seen and observed a lot of businesses um, who would take in brand and, and brand-led thinking um, in Europe especially and kind of applied that thinking to New Zealand. So I um, got a lot out of working with him and and we started talking and then um, we developed a partnership to kind of take the agency, which we grew from about, it was quite small, grew from sort of seven, eight people to about 42 people um, over the 10 years that I was involved. But it was less about numbers, I guess, but more about the influence. And we were able to work in with a lot of New Zealand businesses that wanted brand and marketing to be kind of a key part of their mix. Um, so yeah, we, we had a real specialization in, in primary sector and food and beverage uh, and taking kind of businesses that were differentiated and, and putting them on the world stage, yeah. So what's a, I guess, a, a sort of, you know, summary of the, the, you know, the playbook that you would follow to, mm. uh, to mm. do that? Because, you know, as a nation, that's what we need to do, right? We need to, yeah. we need to take, uh, you know, the incredible, uh, you know, products that come out of out of the you know ingenuity and uh, the smarts that that you know Kiwis often have with coming up with things that are yeah. uh, unique and and different you know different to to what else is out there. Yes, uh, and we need to take those things onto the onto the global stage. We do, and that's been a big big passion of mine. A uh, big part of my work actually is to is to create these brands that are that are world leading in the categories that. Are differentiated in that way. I think a big part of the model that we used to use, which um, you know I talk about quite frequently and openly, is that you've got to, I touched on it before, but you need a really strong vision, you need to set an ambition, that's kind of the first bit, but you need to articulate that in the way that it's different. So that's kind of step number one. Step number two is you then need to kind of find your story. So a big part of the brands that I've worked on um, in my career, we've um, put storytelling really at the forefront of those. So how do you create a really unique story? And we talk about a story that the ne- world's never heard before. So it has to be your story. It has to be authentic. It has to be engaging. It has to be quite rich and deep. Uh, and so a lot of the businesses I've worked with, including Rocket, where I'm at now, you actually go to long format. You go into you know chapters of your story, what makes you different, how do you create that texture, that that uniqueness? And it's it should exist in some long format. You might only ever use it in short form, but there's almost like a storybook that you develop for it. So that's a big part of what we did in the agency. We wrote the story of Icebreaker, we wrote the story of Stein Like a Pure. Uh, we wrote the backstory for Fisher and Paykel, you know, uh, appliances. It's that type of thing that um, you can draw from as a source document. So that's step number two. Step number three is, you know, how do you then um, bring design and visual, the visual articulation of that story and that vision to life? And so, you know, a big part of my influence is always try to find, you know, interesting design, things that are quite out of the category that can influence, you know. So uh, I try and do that with every project. But design plays such a key role. 
And I think we've got great designers in New Zealand. You know, we have world bidding people in this country that can help businesses uh, to create something really unique and, and world leading. Yeah, I So that's that third space. And then the fourth one is is the one that's taken me a while in my career actually to to understand and actually outwork and probably only my last two roles have I really started to bring that culture side in. So the fourth part is how do you get a network of people, a culture behind a brand and a business and, and it's marketing. So we create what we call kind of an infectious culture, people that carry it um, and people that kind of connect that um, brand and that marketing uh, through the channel into the end consumer. So that's really important as well. You want to kind of create brand heat um, in a way that people just end up loving your brand and, and that's really the key. So that, that model is one of the models that I've used out throughout my whole career, yeah. Sounds pretty challenging, that. I mean, that last bit, create brand heat. I yeah, mean, yeah. <laughs> that must must vary a lot from one brand to another in terms of how you, you, know, how you create that, that excitement, that attention yeah. and so on, right? Yeah, it does, and I think uh, that's a real challenge, you know. That's a cool part of, of the brand side of marketing is how do you create something uh, that people will love and connect to? You know, I think people buy things that or are in communities of things that they love and care about. So how do you create that um, no matter what category it is? And I think, you know, my recent role kind of shows you that no matter what it is, even if it's a commodity and it's a real challenging product, that you can still do that. Mm, if you're clever, mm, yeah, mm, mm. yeah, great. Um, anything else from from that you know time in, in agency land with um, with Brian Richards? That was sort of yeah. any any less other lessons that sort of stand out? Yeah, I think uh, I think that those businesses that take that time and take that effort to differentiate themselves, I have seen them really win over time, and I think the principles of brand and marketing put in those ways mean that you can actually really stand out in your category. I think the other thing that we touched on is, you know, products that can try and um, trade up um, over time will really win out in terms of their position, in terms of their pricing, uh, in terms of the value that they're creating. So it's a real, as you say, it's a real challenge to try and trade up and not just be in the middle market. But there's a, there's a whole kind of position which you look at kind of, um, between prestige and mainstream, um, and it's almost like it sounds like a strange word, but this idea of kind of mastige marketing, which is right in that sweet spot um, where people will pay a little bit more. It's perceived with those premium cues. It's not super premium though. Uh, it appeals to a, a growing number of consumers around the world who have higher disposable incomes. Um, that's the positioning for New Zealand products that can really win. And so um, that's what we've been pursuing and finding out what consumers are kind of thinking in, in and around that kind of positioning in the market. So that's that's been another thing that I've always tried to pursue is that mastige positioning. I like that. I like that uh, that that term and that that thinking of sort of yeah mass market, but uh, yeah, you know not the not the budget offering, but uh, but yeah, there's obviously something special. Yeah. Uh, there. Yeah. 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 yeah, I read a really good um, article in Harvard Business Review in 2002. It's a quite an old article all about this um, concept. Um, I think it was written by Silverstein, who was a really great uh, marketer in, in the US. 
And um, it was game changing for me at Orca at the time because it talked all about how trading up, um, reaching this new kind of consumer that was emerging in the world and particularly in the States and Europe. Um, and often how a lot of the decisions in the home were being made um, by these consumers who had a little bit more income. They were interested in brands and they were starting to uh, more than ever be more savvy around what was, uh, you know, their kind of personal choices in life. So that I think it was called Trading Up and Harvard Business Review, yeah. Mm. Now you you moved across to, uh, to Les Mills International. Uh, you were global marketing uh, director yeah. there. Tell us a little bit about that because that seems like a really good alignment for, yeah. for you. Uh, and, you know, I remember, you know, following some of your sort of social posts, um, yes. you know, during during that uh, that period, 2016 through to through to 2020. Yeah. And it did seem like you were in a real uh, sweet spot with that sort of mm. crossover mm. of your your marketing uh, talent and also, uh, you know, your your interest in uh, in sport and, and fitness. Yes. Oh, look, I think that's probably a sweet spot for the whole industry, you know, uh, that time. It was a real boom for fitness. Uh, we had probably the leader in, in group fitness in the world in, in Les Mills International. Uh, we had grown to, over that time, we grew to, I think, 15,000 uh, clubs to well over 20,000 clubs who were licensing our workouts. Um, so you kind of think of Les Mills and you think, oh, it's those great gyms, you know, in Victoria Street or Newmarket, but actually there's a whole other business called Les Mills International, which licenses the workouts around the world. Uh, and Philip Mills has been, you know, probably one of the pioneers of the whole industry, you know, a handful of people in the world, probably five people who have been the most important people in the whole fitness industry, and he'd be one of those five people. So you've got a really great um, kind of person um, leading that business uh, in, in, a, in a way that's been revolutionary. So it was just really special to be a part of it, actually, and... Um, it's a family-owned business, you know, which is really unique in the world. I think Burden's the only bigger kind of family-owned sports business in the world still um, yep. as, as a snowboarding business. So, you know, I think um, sometimes you forget how great that company is out in New Zealand. So, yeah, I think I took on that challenge. I um, worked a lot with Philip closely um, during that time, which was really great. Uh, and we were able to take Les Mills out to a, a lot more consumers, millions, more people around the world, uh, which was a real passion of mine, you know, fitness and sport. Um, so it was great, yeah. Yeah, so um, what what was it that um, that you had to start with and then you know, you evolved that? There was sort of a, a technological aspect to it or what yeah. were the, you know, what was what was sort of the difference in terms of, um, you know, what you what you ended up doing? Was it a product change or was it, was it, you know, how much was a marketing and yes. and innovation? How did that sort of fit together? I think uh, there were probably a few things in terms of my influence on the on the business and and maybe the creative design side was the first piece. So there were some great parts to the brand, but the brand had some real naff parts as well when I turned <laughs> up. <laughs> naff. Um, you that. know, things that just weren't that cool, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and group fitness wasn't that cool. Um, but probably the first opportunity was to work in with the, the global partner Reebok who who was becoming cooler. They they 
we're seeing fitness as a way to kind of grow their brand internationally and uh, and they were doing some cool stuff actually with CrossFit uh, at the time and, and so we sort of said, hey, which was the beginning of that sort of sport, we said, hey, well, look, why don't we come at this and actually um, level up our marketing, our creativity together and how can that play a role for the whole of Les Mills? So we went out and we tried to find some of the world's best sports photographers, you know, so we started working with people like Carlos Sorrell and um, people who were known worldwide as the best sports photographers in the world um, and creatives. We started working with some of the big agencies um, out of the US who could who could kind of take the business to another level with their creative ideas. And and so I just sort of set an expectation that this should be a world-class brand, you know, and, and everything we do should be at that kind of level. So that's probably one of my key influences um, through that relationship with Reebok, um, who I spent a lot of time with up in Boston. Um, and then the second thing, yeah, is probably not, probably more a part of a team with uh, the technology changes going on in the fitness category at the time was, you know, we were in 20,000 gyms, brick, bricks and mortar, uh, and everyone did their group fitness by turning up and, you know, going into that class. But <clears throat> we had, you know, a real change with, more and more people just every year saying, hey, can I do these workouts at home as well? And and so technology was playing more of a role. So as I say, a team of us, probably um, the head of music at the time, uh, Philip, who was interested, obviously, and, and other people in the business, um, Vaughan, uh, who headed up um, Les Mills Enterprises, we sort of said, oh, you know, how can we take this into a technology platform? And we were seeing brands like Kayla Edsonis out of Australia grow from sort of nothing to sort of 10 million followers, you know, um, with her fitness products um, online and through digital applications. So uh, we looked at starting what was called Les Mills On Demand. And I can remember the early model had, you know, less than sort of 200 people on the platform. Uh, but we started investing into that and growing that over time. And, and boy, it was probably the right thing with with what happened with COVID, you know, um, coming yeah, at, at yeah. that business really early on, mm, being in mm. China, um, that hit that company quite quite quickly. So, yeah, so Les Mills On Demand became Les Mills Plus, uh, which it is today, and and um, the model's a really successful model in terms of taking it to an in-home experience and, and setting it up so, you know, hundreds of thousands of people can do Les Mills in, in their homes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. So... Now it's uh, it's all about Rocket. Yeah. Uh, Rocket Global and selling apples. Yeah. How hard is it to uh, to sell apples and to uh, to sell a lot of apples? Because it, yeah. you're selling $150 million worth of apples yeah. <laughs> a year now, right? So, it's a lot, um, right? So. Yeah, walk, walk us through this, this story and how you were, you know, enticed into uh, – uh, to the world of apples. Yeah, I think, you know, it was a real challenge for me. I think I was um, excited about taking on a commodity. Uh, people always sort of said, oh, Julian, you know, how hard is it to sell, you know, the world's leading workout around the world? Or how hard is it to sell such a cool brand like Orca or be involved with, you know, Steinlager Pure? It's a great product anyway. But um, taking on a commodity brand out of Hawke's Bay with quite a, sort of humble company and saying, 
how do you create the world's most loved Apple brand, you know, and how do you engage millions of consumers to love a brand that's the humble Apple? Um, it was quite a challenge, actually. So I thought it was a great one, and um, Pioneer Capital, who own the business, were really keen on bringing me in and uh, with a couple of other key executives. So um, it was just the right timing, I guess. The, the fitness industry was going through a really tough time, and I could see that the food industry and particularly high-quality food products out in New Zealand were going to be in hot demand. Um, and then the other piece of research that I did was just around pre-packaged food. So Rocket's got that massive advantage in, in the world where food safety and and other attributes of, of the product were just world-beating. So, uh, yeah, so it was a really great thing to take on and sort of see what I could do with it. And a bit of a better-up moment, you know, a lot of people I spoke to were like, shit, Julian, what are you doing? Like taking on, you know, you, you're, the, you're the king of kind of sports marketing and and fun businesses um, that you're involved in, but you're taking on an Apple brand, you know, people didn't get it. So um, I'm I'm really delighted that I've been able to sort of do what I've done with Rocket, yeah. Yeah, maybe <coughs> for, for listeners that, that don't know about the brand and, you know, there, there's always a few people that uh, uh, maybe have been living under a rock or what have you, but, mm. Um, mm. you know, maybe you can walk, walk through, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, what, what Rocket, is and 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 what is you know what's different about it in terms of its its packaging its distribution and so on sure so you know rocket's probably truly the only snacking apple in the world so it had that great point of difference it's a miniature apple recognized by the un but we had to actually convince people that it was a fully mature apple uh and people didn't believe us or want to believe us when when it started out uh so it's it packs a massive punch in terms of nutrition, though. So it's half the size but double kind of the nutrition of a normal apple. So it's like a superfood. Uh, and it's got these great qualities where it's snackable, it's portable, it's mobile. Um, and it comes in a, a unique kind of pre-washed, ready-to-eat um, packaging, which is now in multi formats around the world as well as we look at innovating in a sustainable way um, in the category uh, so that we have different types of offerings for consumers around the world. So, yeah, so it's got a great product advantage in that sense. Uh, and that was the other look-in that I did is, you know, how much could this win? I think great marketing is a combination of, of a product advantage and a brand advantage, so I had to have both, really. So when I had a look at it, its nutritional aspects and I had a look at the portability of it, I thought how do we take this into a different distribution network? How do we come out of the fruit aisle? How might we go into the premium side of of the equation? How maybe can we even go into the snacking category? You know, can we go into airports? Can we go into gyms? Can we take this little apple and put it in places that people don't expect? So a big part of it has been the surprise and delight factor and, and that's um, been fantastic. So... We've managed to put it into some of um, the world's highest kind of value markets. So we're really big in Greater China. We're big in the Middle East. We're winning in Southeast Asia. Um, the U.S. product has gone gangbusters. If you think of our price, which was at three dollars ninety nine uh, for a three pound equivalent, and we're now at nine dollars, um, just sort of two and a half years later for that same amount of product. Uh, it's trading up. Um, yeah. So that's been phenomenal, yeah. 
So when, when you've got a product that does as well <clears> as this, then you tend to get copycats, right? Yeah. So what what does that aspect sort of look like, and what challenges does does that uh, does that create, or or have you got such a unique apple that no one else has been able to come up with, uh, you know, some something anywhere in the ballpark yet? You know, I think um, one of the things when you're successful with your marketing is that uh, people start to steal it. Uh, it's probably one really good tipping point for a brand. Yeah. Yep. So I know I remember with Orca, people started stealing our signage at races, you know, and <laughs> we'd we'd be looking at um, we'd be looking at a sand, we'd be like, where'd that poster go? And someone had literally stolen it. And I can remember sort of saying to Scott, who, you know, was the founder owner, I, I said, you know, we've reached that tipping point where people are stealing it. We're actually quite hot now. Um, so that happens, but that happens in a physical way with consumers um, wanting to kind of connect to the branded elements. But unfortunately, obviously, it happens with competitive markets as well, and you often kind of uh, birth a whole lot of either counterfeit or, or or other companies that want to kind of trade off your positioning, right, when you do it right. So, um, you know, I've, what I've learned over the years is you've really got to sort of look at defending yourself in the right way, which is appropriate. Um, and there's diff- different levels of defense. So one of them is just sort of um, coming at the copycats, coming at the people who are passing off um, and, you know, defending at that level, which over time you probably can't actually win um, over time, um, depending on how big or how far that goes. Uh, in certain categories, it can be really hard to, to stop all of that. So that's kind of one area. The other area is, I guess, propagation of things like varieties like Rocket, um, where you can defend and win over time. So you just sort of make sure that your plant variety or your sort of secret sauce or whatever it might be um, for your industry, um, you know, should register, make sure that you've got the patent or you've got the registration around that. And I think you can win there in that kind of area. Um, so, you know, investing into your intellectual property or investing into your rights is really key. I think a lot of what I've done has ended up with high equity in, in the brands that we've worked with. And so having big programs that do um, cover off trademarking, cover off registrations um, is important actually for the rights owners. And, you know, you're seeing that increasingly with um, rights owners being able to exercise and open up different channels and ways to get to consumers. So I think that's just so key in today's world, you know, whether it's in the digital space, whether it's in through uh, NFTs or in through Web3, you know, rights owners are going to be the ones that won over time. So, yeah, that's that's really key. Mm-hmm. Now, just your your mention there of uh, obviously sort of, you know, Orca posters stolen and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, when when you were, when you were talking about Les Mills International, one of the things that you know was just so clear in my mind was the incredible uh, visual element of yeah. your of your marketing. Mm. And then when you when you mentioned Orca, I remember the same thing. Mm. It seems as though that's sort of been part of kind of your DNA and how you operate is to you know to to make part of it uh, visuals that really you know, are memorable and, and connect for people. Yeah, look, I, I think I was really fortunate early on to be part of Better by Design in New Zealand and 
there were nine people in New Zealand, I was probably 20 years the youngest, um, who were coached um, in Better by Design practices and then um, used as coaches, in turn used as coaches. And the early version of that program, Jeremy Moon spared a lot of that from Icebreaker and he was keen on New Zealand businesses being design-led. Uh, and so he involved IDEO quite early on and he got a number of us um, educated around the principles of design and how design could play a role in, within business. And I think that was foundational for me and I was given that opportunity. I think both Jeremy and Brian were really keen for a younger person like myself coming through to understand these principles, understand what businesses could do. So I just think um, design's played such a key role, one in the aesthetics, but equally just in the role of um, what design and that way of thinking and solving problems, um, you know, like a designer can bring about, whether it's in products or in service design. So it's been a big part of kind of the way that I work, the way that I think. I'll always try and bring creatives into a problem or into a project. I'll always be pushing the businesses to kind of think about it from a design lens. And I guess it's part of, um, as I said, that early kind of wiring uh, that I had where, you know, um, creativity was such a key part and being in the art room was just as important to me as, as being on the field or being, you know, in, in the mathematics kind of er arena or in the business arena. So, yeah, I think it's a big part of the, what I've done and, and built into those brands. It's part of maybe my signature that I've left on a few of those brands as well. Um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, there's something, I'm not sure if it's on, on your LinkedIn, but you've been doing some work down this track of NFTs, non non-fungible tokens and it sort of yeah. re relates back to you know some of what we were talking about with rocket and ip mm. and so on so can you can you walk us through what's uh, what's happening on that front yeah sure um so look i've got to i guess i'm learning you know is probably the first bit is uh that's an area for the last just over a year now that i've been working in with the team at glorious digital and learning really, and, and just being an extension to their marketing team, uh, working in with Murray Tom and Tim Harper and Dan Carter's obviously involved, and trying to navigate, I guess, a very changing world week to week and working on projects and um, looking at great world-leading properties like Wimbledon and, um, and, and other projects that they have, um, you know, to sort of say, how do we apply a lens to this, which can build on some of the principles that I'm bringing from maybe from more of a traditional marketing sense, bringing those into a kind of a web three environment with um, with Glorious and trying to do things again from New Zealand, which um, can be world beating. So I just love that kind of part of, of what they're doing. They've also got a really true kind of authentic model, Glorious, which is fantastic in that I think Murray set up the business, you know, for um, artists first and musicians and and creators first and um, and try to work that model so that they get such an advantage working with Glorious. So that fits really well with me as well. But to be honest, it's it's been more out of interest um, for and and to see whether I can just kind of help them from an extension perspective to their marketing. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know it's a it's a really fascinating area and and you know always think that uh, yeah we've got to put on this futurist hat like all of us need to right be looking ahead at where where things are heading and um, you yeah. know there, there there's always 
technology that's that's coming. Yeah. And you know, if we if we just wait for it to become sort of you know completely mainstream, then mm. often <clears throat> there's so many opportunities that can be uh, that can be missed out on. So you know, I think yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's important to experiment and embrace. So yeah, I, that's I a think, great approach. I think Paul, like um, great marketers, <clears throat> should be influenced from lots of different in lots of different ways. So, you know, even though I'm working for an Apple brand, I'll spend a lot of time looking at um, design, looking at creativity, looking at technology, where it's going, you know, trying to encourage my team, coach my team, you know, what are you looking at? What are your reference points? What's happened over the weekend that's new in the world, you know? So that whole space, I think, is really important for marketers to, even if they're not outworking a whole lot of projects, think about maybe one thing that they can do in a Web3 environment, you know, in the next 12 months and how can they be involved with their projects? How can they be involved with what they're doing? And they'll you can find ways, you know, which are easy um, ways in to, to use te- those technologies, you know. So you might be running a, an event and you might just put up a PO app, you know, just a proof of attendance and you just run it through that and just learn through that, um, you know, as a really s- easy starting point. Um, you might say, hey, we're actually looking at um, doing something a little bit more creative with some digital art for our business. So, yeah, I think marketers should be always be curious and they should be constantly learning and being influenced by lots of things, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> now, um, one question that I, that I do <clears throat> like, to, uh, like to ask is um, if there was sort of one tip or one piece of advice that you could give listeners to sort of, you know, take away um, and, and implement uh, tomorrow, um, what, what, would that, what would that be? I think it would be that if you don't already have a really strong vision for what you're doing, to try and articulate a vision in a way that's world-beating and uh, to spend time developing and crafting something that people can carry throughout the organisation so when we cracked for Rocket, we want to become the world's most loved Apple brand, and now a team of people kind of carry that. Just that, just that vision has really enabled us to really switch on across a whole global network, uh, a way to um, set that ambition, to set our kind of goals, our metrics, and kind of measure against that. So <clears throat> that would be probably the main thing. I think the other thing that I've been that I really learned at Les Mills International, which I've applied to Rocket, was just the power of setting your marketing metrics in a way that are measurable, but equally that are powerful. And so you have to have that ambition first, but then you have to sort of set your metrics in a way that, again, your team knows what it needs to deliver on. It's really um, clear, and you're bringing those metrics into a lot of your meetings, you know. So that performance kind of led edge I think is what a lot of New Zealand businesses need is to combine maybe their natural advantage or their natural flair and their category with that performance edge and their measurement of those metrics and bring those into the conversation, you know, bring those into their daily work um, and even review them lots, you know, I think maybe that's the thing that's missing in lots of New Zealand businesses is that performance edge, yeah. And so, how do you how do you do that? How do you do that performance piece? What do you 
you must have a lot of data points you can draw yeah. from. How yeah. do you decide what are the what are the most important ones and the ones to, to look at? Otherwise, you you know you could spend a, a day looking at, at at numbers, right? But yes. you you need to be able to quite quickly, uh, you know, drill into the metrics that are that are going to be most most valuable and not sort of cloud people's views with too much data. Yeah, I think you sort of look at the pillars that matter within your marketing mix. So I'll give you an example at Rocket. So we use brand as a pillar. So we measure um, prompted and unprompted awareness, you know, globally. Uh, we've set that through up through a partner in um, Sydney called Qualtrics who does that across global markets for us as a um, technology partner. Um, so that's one one pillar is brand. Then, you, then we look at consumer, you know, how do we – how do we grow millions more consumers around the world? So we're looking at our data sets. We're looking at um, growing our um, connectedness um, globally. So those are metrics for us. So it's in that consumer pillar. And then we want to win, you know, unashamedly, we want to win um, and surprise and delight people at point of sale with Rocket. So we set a number of point of sale metrics, whether it be um, exemplar stores, the number of exemplar stores we want around the world or high impact displays that we want Um so you suddenly start to work across your pillars that matter across your marketing mix and then you set those metrics kind of accordingly and then you use those across the team to say, hey, look, you know, we had a goal of getting, I don't know, X number of um, hundred high-impact displays around the world or exemplar stores and where we at and you, you kind of use that as a, as a measurement tool. So that's something, as I say, that is uh, the discipline of that's kind of really come into my work and um, – being combined with the creative side, I think you've got a winning edge if you can combine those two. Yeah, agreed. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm. Well, congratulations on on your success, Julian. Uh, you know, it is very exciting. Uh, you know, especially following where things are going with uh, with Rocket, uh, an incredible growth, and really fascinated to sort of see you know where to from here and what the next uh, the next few years are ahead hold. So yeah. all the best. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. Look, I've yeah. really enjoyed having a chat and. That time's flowing, so hopefully people have um, taken something out of it, but it's been fun. Thank you. Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us on the New Zealand Business Podcast. Uh, this has been uh, the Sales and Marketing Insider Edition, and we'll be back real soon uh, with another episode. All right. Thank you.